What's up, Chapel family? How's everybody doing? Good. Man, it feels good to be back home. We've been out the last two weeks. A couple weeks ago, we went on the 4th of July weekend with some good friends of ours up in Nashville. And last weekend, RJ was in a basketball tournament in Atlanta, and we got to go to Jensen Franklin's church there in downtown Atlanta, which I love Free Chapel and what Jensen Franklin is doing there. But it is good to be in this house this morning. And you saw that video. We're bringing midweek service back starting in September. It's going to be a powerful night of prayer and worship and teaching here in the sanctuary for adults, but also our chapel youth have what they've been doing all since the beginning of time. But we're adding the chapel kids grow component. And you say, what is grow? It is that opportunity for us to take kids in, a, in an environment that is biblically centered and presence driven and teach them the Word of God, help them memorize God's Word, teach them how to pray, and develop them. And you don't know that there's a battle right now in culture for the minds and hearts of children. And it's easy to sit and watch the news and complain about the youngest generation. It's much more difficult to get in the game and help develop the next generation. And so that's what we're trying to accomplish here. Sunday mornings are great. Our kids learn the Word of God, all that stuff. But there's something about a smaller environment where you can reteach and apply and t- pray with kids and teach them how to walk with Jesus. So I'm asking you to step in the game. This is not a, a commitment to be a part of Chapel Kids for now until eternity. How many of you know that many times in church when you volunteer for something, you volunteer from now until the time Jesus comes back? That's not this thing. This is a semester-based thing, so we're, we're planning this now so we can get you trained and equipped to start in September, and you'll be done before uh, uh, the end of Thanksgiving or whatever that may be. So if you're interested in that, say, so you know what? I, I love teaching. I love teaching the Word of God. I love praying. This is a great opportunity for you to do that and teach. You want to do that? Text the Word. I don't know if it's up there. Grow. G-R-O-W to 256-670-2860, or just let Chapel Kids No. We also start a new series called Raise the Standard starting in August. It's our vision series where I'm going to communicate where I believe God is taking us as a people and as a church, but also reshare, recast the vision of who we are and what we're going to do here in the Shoals. So go ahead and put that on your calendar. But besides that, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to deal with Jesus and how Jesus talks about anxiety and deals with anxiety because you may not know this, but there is a battle for our minds. Our minds are preoccupied, our minds are stressed, our minds have a bunch of thoughts, our minds have a bunch of worries, our minds have a bunch of images, our minds have a bunch of noises, our minds have a bunch of voices, our minds have a bunch of TVs, a bunch of screens, a bunch of phones. Our minds are constantly polluted and convoluted with information. And John Osteen, Joel Osteen's dad said this, I love this quote, he said, you can have heaven in your heart, but hell in your mind. And I believe that's more real now than than ever before, because it is a battleground. Your mind is a battleground, and it's a battleground that I feel like we as people are losing. That in America, one in five individuals, Christian, non-Christian, deal with mental health issues, anxiety, stress, depression, suicide, etc. And it's, it's not that common in other parts of the world, so there's something about our culture that escalates losing the battle of our minds. And I believe it's some of it is the church has gotten away from it. We just kind of covered up. Just, just pray about it. No, no, no. I believe that you pray about it, but there's also things you can do about it at the same time. And I think part of it is we've gotten away from prayer and got more involved in just watching church instead of being part of the church. And we've lost the, the soul care that God intends for us. But you need to know this. Jesus 
does not shy away from anxiety or depression or any of those. He actually deals with it a lot. And he says this, so you say, but what is anxiety? Well, anxiety to me is when you lose control of your thought life. Your thought life starts going many different directions and it starts getting so burdened and so fast and so unprocessed, it becomes weighty upon you and you no longer know how to process those thoughts. How many of you ever played the game of Tetris before? Raise your hand. You're probably playing it right now, not listening to me preach. Um, so Tetris is a game where you're, you're trying to process all these shapes. If you'll throw that video up, like Tetris is this, you're processing really quickly where everything goes and where it fits in the right spot. The problem with Tetris is if you don't process one of the pieces correctly, it goes in the wrong spot and it starts to stack up upon one another until finally it starts speeding up and getting faster and faster and faster. And so if you ever play Tetris, once it starts building up, you start getting worried and stressed. You start trying to, and you panic, you start making bad decisions on where to play stuff. You don't have enough time to process. And you start building up until finally it builds all the way up to the top. And then it says what? Game over. I feel like anxiety is kind of the same way where you have these thoughts that come your way, whether it may be thoughts of your finances, maybe it's thoughts of what's going to happen tomorrow, maybe it's thoughts of a bad report, maybe it's thoughts from work, maybe it's thoughts from family, maybe it's thoughts that Nick Saban's going to leave to go coach Auburn, maybe it's thoughts of whatever it may be. And like these thoughts keep you up at night. And so what happens is they start coming, but if you don't know where the thought is supposed to go, if you don't filter that thought correctly, it won't fit in the place that God has created. Every thought has a place God wants it to go. And when it doesn't fit, it begins to stack up. And once it starts speeding up, you lose control of your mind or the game of life. And all of a sudden, anxiety is that same feeling in Tetris. When it starts stacking up and stacking up, that is anxiety. When your thought life stacks up so much, you no longer know how to process what is coming your way. And Jesus deals with it so well here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. He says this. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. That's called a commandment. Everybody say, do not be anxious. He's telling them, hey, do not be anxious. But everywhere in the Bible where you see a commandment, this is a great principle for those of you that, that, that think church is legalistic. Everywhere God gives a commandment, he also gives a promise to fulfill that commandment. He says, do not be anxious about your life and what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He says, look. Everybody say, look. He says, don't be anxious. Slow down and look. Stop what you're thinking about and look at something different. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, of being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, neither they toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, therefore, 
Do not be anxious. He says it again. He says, do not be anxious. He gives a commandment. He shows why you shouldn't be anxious. He says, again, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, he says again, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Like he says, do not be anxious four times in just a few verses. And so you need to know this, that you do not have to be anxious. You do not have to worry. God's got you. Touch your neighbor and say, God's got you. Now touch your other neighbor and say, he's got you too. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to these followers. He's like, why are you worried? Why are you anxious? Look at these birds. Look at these lilies. Look at the flowers. Look at all the, look how beautiful. They don't have to worry about anything. Do you realize we're the only species on earth that doesn't trust God enough to provide for us? You've never seen a flower worrying about drought coming. You've never seen animals worrying about where they're going to get their next food. You've never, we're the only creatures that think we're more than God, that we have everything under control. We don't need him. And Jesus is literally saying, say, look at all creation. If I take care of the stars, if I take care of the birds, if I take care of the lilies, I got you. I got you. Like Jesus doesn't want us to worry. He doesn't want us to be anxious. He communicates over and over through the Bible, even in this Sermon on the Mount, his, his number one sermon. He goes from prayer, the Lord's Prayer, into making sure we realize the Lord's Prayer is connected to God providing for you and you not being anxious. There's actually 366 commands to do not be anxious or do not be afraid in the Bible. 366 that means there's one for every day of the year, including leap year. So you have no reason to be worried even in a leap year. Like he, he's trying to tell us, pay attention. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. You can't add anything to your life through anxiety. You can't add anything to your life without worrying about tomorrow. He's saying, I got you. It is time for us to listen. Charles Stanley said it this way. As you walk through the valley of the unknown, you will find the footprints of Jesus both in front of you and beside you. And so Jesus said, look, if you, as you see creation, look, pay attention, because as I'm with the flowers, as I'm with the birds, I'm also with you. And he gives us some principles in this little short teaching if when you start dealing with anxiety, start becoming anxious, how to move your thoughts from anxiety to greater trust in God. And, and the first thing he says, he says, look, touch your neighbor and say, look. He says, look. He says, stop and look. When you get anxious about your life, stop and look at the birds. Stop and look at these. Stop and look at creation. Stop. And, and what he's saying is, slow down and push pause. Like when you're playing Tetris and that game gets faster, what's amazing is as the pieces start coming faster and faster, you start getting anxious and worried about where this fits and where that fits. You get so frustrated, you forget that you can simply push pause. Like me and RJ, he's been playing NBA 2K and we'll play. He's gotten where he starts to cheat. He'll push pause when I'm about to shoot the basketball so that I lose all congruency and smoothness of my shot and I miss it. He uses it as a weapon or as a tool. 
Do you realize you can use the pause button as a weapon in your anxiety? That when you start getting anxious, you can simply push the pause button. The Bible calls this a principle of Sabbath. Now, now we are terrible. We think Sabbath is just a day of the week, which I had that argument in the New Testament church. They argued over what day is Sabbath. But Sabbath is not just a day. It's a principle that God gives the entire universe to push pause, to remember that he's provided for us, and to rest in that trust, and to stop the hamster wheel of our minds from running rampant. It is a principle. It is not just a command. It's a gift. In Mark 2, Jesus said this. And he said to them, the Sabbath was not made for man. Or, or the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Mark Buchanan says this. Sabbath is seizing from what is necessary to embrace that which gives life. I think one of the greatest Attacks the enemy is, is used. He's, he's convinced the church that Sabbath is a burden and not a blessing. He's convinced the people of God that Sabbath is some commandment that you got to be restricted. And when Mark says, no, it's simply stopping from being your own provider long enough to enjoy the provision God has given you. And when you do so, it slows down your mind, it slows down your life, it slows down your personal pursuits enough to stop the hamster wheel so the next day you can begin to process your thoughts correctly. And so Sabbath reminds us that we are not in control, God is. Like even the first Sabbath of the law with the Israelites through the, the wilderness, God told them, I want you to collect double portion on Friday, because their Sabbath is Saturday, so that you don't have to do anything on Saturday. What he's saying is, Sabbath is a day for you to know and trust that I will provide for you. You can depend on me. And the reason we don't practice Sabbath principles in our lives is because we don't trust that God will take care of what we feel like we need to take care of. We build our schedules around what we need to do, what I need to do, instead of trusting God and what he wants to do. And most of our anxiety is rooted in control issues. Most of our anxiety is rooted in control issues. And the problem with that is control is a myth. You never have control of anything. Touch your neighbor and say, you ain't got control. You got kids, I promise you, you don't control those kids. We can't even control ourselves. The only biblical thing we have is self-control. And so anxiety is rooted in this, this thing that we can control the things that happen tomorrow. Well, what if this happens tomorrow? What about my clothes? What about my job? What about this? What? And then we start trying to control our futures. And when you start carrying a burden that is a God-sized burden, it will give you anxiety. You are not created to prepare and plan and dictate what happens in the future. You don't have the mental capacity, nor the spiritual capacity, nor the biological capacity to handle planning the entire timeline of history in a universal balance. But when you start trying to figure this out and that out, what you're really saying is, I think I can do it. I think I could. If you've seen the movie Bruce Almighty, which is not a very biblically accurate movie, at one point, Jim Carrey, he becomes 
God. And he's sitting at the, 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 the computer back in the day. It was like the tube monitor, the old school computer. He's trying to answer the prayers of all the people in the world. And they're coming at him so fast. He's like typing really, really fast. But he realizes now the world's falling apart because everybody has a Lamborghini. Everybody has, is money, has rich, is rich and has money. Everybody has all this stuff. What happened was it got out of balance. And when you think that you can control your future, you don't realize your future is connected to your kid's future, your friend's future, the world's future. And so when you want to control this, you're actually carrying the burden of all that together and your anxiety is actually rooted in control issues. You depend on yourself rather than depend on God. But Sabbath also helps us rediscover our dependence and trust in God. Peace comes as we transform our need of control into surrender to God. It's a beautiful thing that when you realize you don't really have control, you can hand that over to God and it becomes trust that he does. It reminds me, Sabbath reminds me as I depend and trust in God, it reminds me that the God of tomorrow is on my side. That the God of tomorrow is with me. The God of tomorrow is not against me. He's actually for me. And the God of tomorrow is working on my behalf. See, Sabbath slows me down enough to remember what God has done, to enjoy the presence of God now, but to rest in the promises of God for the future. And that's, that's the omnipresence of God, that the Sabbath slows us down enough to realize that God is with me. Because when I'm anxious, that's the last thing I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about this thought and that thought and what if this and what if that. And Sabbath says, whoa, whoa, whoa just push pause and enjoy my presence for just a moment. For me, you know, many times that's, that's when during hunting season, I like to get out in the woods and hunt. And I just see all God's creation. It reminds me that the God who created all of this is with me and he's going before me. For you, maybe it's resting in, in a prayer closet or a prayer chair in your house. Maybe for you, it's, it's going out to eat with your wife. Whatever your principles are, it's ceasing from what you have to do to grab a hold of that which gives life to your soul and your relationship with God. And see, the omnipresence of God is one thing. And it reminds you that, see, I, I think, especially in Pentecostal circles, we, we get really bad on this. We think we need God to come. God, come. I need you, God. Come into my, God, I need you. God, I, I need, and you don't realize that God is not coming. I need you to hear this. That so many times, like, God, and we say this here, and it, there's, I'll get to it later, principles of, you know, God, we need you to show up. God, God, we invite your presence in this room. And God, maybe when you're dealing with anxiety, like, God, I just need you to come. Maybe when you're stressed or you're dealing with the question, God, I just need you to show up. Or you're praying, God, I need you to, to move in this situation. And we always have this mentality that we're here, God is there, and we're trying to get God to come from there to here. But here's the principle. God is not coming. He's already here. And Sabbath slows down everything else so that you can see that God is already here. Even when you're anxious, God is there. Even when you're stressed, God is there. Even in the middle of your sin, God is there. The only problem is we're not aware of his presence. Do you realize it's, it's like the sun. The sun is always shining. The sun, there's no light switch on the sun that, you know, at nighttime, God turns off the switch. No, the sun is always shining. The only difference is at nighttime, there's something blocking the sun from getting to us. 
In the same way, the presence of God is always there. But when it feels like nighttime, when it feels like the darkness and the tragedy of night, it's not that God isn't there. There's just something blocking you from seeing his presence. You may still feel the warmth of his presence. Even when the sun's not shining, if the sun wasn't shining at nighttime, if the sun went out at nighttime, it'd be 20 million degrees below freezing. But even when nighttime is, is caused because of the blocking of the sun, the, shine, the sun shining, the warmth is still there. And so you need to know this, that even in the darkest moments of your life, the presence of God is still there. Even in your deepest despair, God's presence is still there. Even in your moments that you're the most afraid, God's presence is still there. And Jesus is trying to say, he says, listen, look, look, slow down. Do not be anxious. Look for my presence and you will find it. But he doesn't just say that. He says, look, so now look at my presence. He said, but look at the birds. Look at the lilies. Look at the flowers, which I'm not the flower type guy, but look at these flowers. And what he's trying to say is, know your worth. Look at your name and say, know your worth. Like he's saying, like, if I take care of them, I'm going to take care of you. The problem is we, we lose sight. We have this weird image that, that my self-worth is based on how I feel about myself. Let me, let me tell you, your self-worth has nothing to do with your actual worth. Meaning your value is not determined by how you feel. Your value is determined by what God says about you. And he uses these birds and these flowers. So throw up that first picture of that flower. And this is a Shenzhen, I'm trying not to cuss when I'm up here, Shenzhen Nanke flower. It's an orchid in China that somehow they created, crossbred all this stuff, which, you know, in my opinion, China should stop playing with nature and science. Like they created it, it's worth $290,000, I think is what it was. $290,000. It's beautiful. $290,000. Jesus says, look at, this, look at this orchid. People pay $290,000 for that orchid. You are worth more to me than that. Then there's another one. Throw the other one up there. I forgot the name of it. It's the, the Katapul orchid in Sri Lanka. It only blooms once a year, and it blooms at night. And by the next day, it dies. They have tried everything in the world. They've spent millions of dollars trying to keep this thing alive and active. They've said it's priceless. There's no money that can buy this flower. None at all. They call it the ghost flower because it blooms at night and it disappears in the morning. It's beautiful. Jesus says, you're worth more to him than that. Then throw that ugly bird up there. This bird is a $1.9 million pigeon. A pigeon at the park, you feed them breadcrumbs. But it's a racing pigeon from China, which there's something going on in China. Like, $1.9 million pigeon. A pigeon that they race. I don't even know how you race pigeons. I don't know how big the jockey has to be for that thing. But Jesus says, look at the birds. You're worth more to thee than those. See, it's amazing when we start thinking about creation and the value in creation that when you look at the mountains, if you go to the beach, you look at the ocean, if you look at the birds, you look at the flowers, you look at the stars, you look at all these things that they're created, they're amazing. You're worth more than they are. 
And we lose sight. When we're anxious, we lose sight of our value and how much we're worth. And your value, your worth is not determined by your circumstances. It's determined by what God has paid for you. Value is not something that's a feeling. Value is transactional. It's transactional. If you have, I was talking to a guy at a wedding yesterday, he has this, this Mustang. Right? He has his Mustang. He bought it two years after he got married. He bought it in 71. He's had it ever since. He says he doesn't really trust anybody to drive it because it may kill them. Like he goes through all this stuff. He says somebody tried to buy it from him. He wouldn't sell it. He wouldn't sell it because he feels a certain way about it. Right? So there's actually not a value on that car. But the moment somebody walks up and says, I'll give you $10 million for this 71 light blue Mustang. Guess what that car is now worth? $10 million. See, we have bought into the lie that my value or my worth is determined by how I feel. Value is not an emotion nor a feeling. Value is a transaction. And that's why redemption is such a big deal. Jesus didn't just say, God, man, I love the world. Man, I, I, I love them so much. I love, I love Bobby so much. I love Brian so much. I love Brody so much. I, lo I love Emmett so much. I just love you so much. No, that's a feeling. There's no value in that. Our culture esteems values or, or esteems emotions and feelings way too high. How you feel means nothing. God says, I feel this way about you, but your value is determined by a transaction. So I'm going to redeem you. Redeem means I'm going to pay a price. I'm going to buy you back. I'm going to deliver you through a, a cost attached that shows the value. And the price he paid was not $1.9 million, was not 290000 The price he paid was Jesus. And so the value on your life is not how you feel, is not your emotions, is not your circumstances, not your situation, it's not even your sin. The price that you are worth is not diamonds, it's the price of the Son Jesus. And so when I feel bad about myself, I look at Jesus. When I feel down, I look at Jesus. When I feel unworthy, I look at Jesus. Because if he saw enough in me to pay that price, he loves me. He values me. And when we get anxious, we start losing sight of that because here's the other side of that. When I'm anxious, it's what if God doesn't do this? What if God's not true to his word? What if, God, what if this happens tomorrow? What if this happens tomorrow? And what we're really saying is, I don't think God really values me enough to care about my tomorrow. And I'll tell you this, that God loves you enough, but he also values enough that he's not going to abandon you where you are. He didn't bring you all this way to say, okay, I'm done. He didn't, he didn't start, he, even Paul says he, that he, he's going to finish the good work, he's going to complete the good work that he started in you. And what he's saying is, he has too much invested in you to give up on you now. He is not going to, why would he waste the blood of Jesus to say, you know, I've gotten this far, but you know what, they, they got a bad day at work, I guess we're done. You know what, they're stressed about the economy, well, well you know, we've, we haven't seen this before, but I guess we're done. No, he's highly invested in us. If he doesn't want his word to return void to him, how much do you think he doesn't want the blood to return void to him? 
He's invested in this thing. He didn't bring you this far to abandon you. He's still with you and he values you more than you'll ever, ever know. Even Jonah tried to run away from him. Jonah's running away as fast as he can. He's in a storm. He's in the ocean. They throw him out of the boat. He's there by himself, or at least he thinks he's by himself. But guess who's there? God. God is not going to abandon you nor forsake you because he values you in your life too much. And so if the birds never have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from, if the flowers never have to worry about how they're going to grow and prosper and be beautiful. Why are we so worried? Why are we the only creatures in the universe who think we can do better than God? And I'll tell you, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God, I know what you said We got this. And I think it's time that we realize we ain't got it. And to say, God, we trust you, how much you value me. I know you're going to take care of me. And Jesus doesn't stop there with the, look at the birds, look at the lilies, look how I take care of them. He gives us a promise when he says this. He says, if I take care of them, how much more will I take care of you? Touch your name and say, how much more? Like how much, he gives us the promise that don't be anxious, look, slow down, look, then look at the birds, look at the lilies, look how much I value you. If I take care of these birds that die the next day, take care of the flowers that are here one day and thrown in the oven the next day, how much more will I take care of you? That's a promise. So we need to, one, slow down, look, and, and put the, push the pause button. But then two, we need to remember our value and our worth. But three, we need to rest in the promises of God. To rest. Let them hold you up like a cradle. Let them hold you up. Because the problem is we don't rest in the promises of God. We try to grab a hold of them when we need them, but we don't rest in them. That resting means like this laying back in a pillow of God's promises. Laying in a hammock of God's promises and letting the promises hold you up because the anxiety is fueled by this what if mentality. What if this happens? What if this, we dealt with this years ago, Toy was sick and she's in the hospital and the kids, I'm trying to tuck them in at night. It was a difficult, you know, couple days, like, you know, Toy's in the hospital, the kids are all young. It's it's like Super Bowl weekend. So I was like, I just need a mental break. I need to turn on Super Bowl and just veg out for a second. So I'm tucking the kids in and um, you, know, you know, when the kids are younger, like it's a process. Like it's not like a you tuck them in. It's like an hour and a half. You should clock in and out for that thing. So I go up, and we got four, so it's like a four-hour journey. Like going, hey, so I tuck them in. I'm trying to creep out. And they're like, dad, dad, dad. I'm like, oh gosh. So I go back. And it's like what? Like what if mom doesn't make it? What if this happens? What if this happens? I'm like, well, just stop. I said, like, what if? See. So many of us fuel anxiety by asking these questions of what if. And then we start opening up all these other opportunities for disaster in our life. What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? That is not resting in the promises of God. This is resting in the promises of God. When somebody says, well, what if the economy fails? Or what if this happens? Or what if the, this is resting in the promises of God. 
Yeah, but what if God comes through? But what if God's promises are true? But what if God is really faithful? What if God really does? He even says this, but if. God said, but if you're more valuable than them. This if factor, it's so amazing. We use if for the negative, but if should be used for the positive. See, F in the negative is an anxiety, but F in the positive is faith. And the only difference is anxiety sees all the problems in spite of the solutions. It's, you can't see the solution. All you see is the problems, all this. But faith is when you see the solutions in spite of the problems. And so the problems are there, but I, just, I, I see the goodness of God. My body hurts, but I see the healing of God. The economy is going down, but I see the provision of God. I see all these things going on, but I see God's goodness. See, anxiety is fueled. You can't see where God is because you're so busy looking at all your problems, he's disappeared to you. But faith is when no matter how many problems stack up, Job, I'm not going to curse God and die because God is faithful to the end. So what if, to use the same terminology, what if instead of using what if to, to build a case against God, what if we use the word what if we built a case for God? Yeah. We're great at building cases against him. But what if, I say, what if God does like he's done before and he heals Toya? What if God does like he did before and he heals our family? What if God does like he did before and he provides for our family? What if God does like he did before and he pours out his spirit? What if, see, sometimes you need a holy remembrance to fuel the next season of your life. And that what if, what if God is exactly who he said? What if God is the redeemer? What if God is my refuge? What if God is my strength? What if we need to flip the tables and let our faith be fueled by imagination and creativity instead of letting our imagination and creativity fuel our doubt? It's an intentional blindness, which is a term I've used numerous times. It just means this, that sometimes you can focus on one thing so much you can't see anything else. The way I can explain it, guys, if you lose your keys, you're looking for your keys everywhere else. You can't see your keys because your wife moved them. I look for my keys in the same spot every day on the key rack. where It's a key rack. That's where keys go. Some people leave their keys on the couch, on the table, in the bed, in their car, anywhere else. So when I look for my keys, I look where? Key rack. So I'm so focused on the key rack. Where are my keys? My keys are lost. Where are they at? And Toy's like, they're right here. You walked right past them. I can't see them because I'm looking right here. Sometimes you can't see the solutions that God has given you because you're so focused on something else, you're missing it. And I'm just here to tell you maybe if you take a step back, you'll see that the answers are all around you. That you've been fueling your doubts and your anxiety and your fears with things that aren't even real. If you would tap into that creative imagination to fuel your faith, you would see possibilities that you've never seen before. And then once that happens, you can rest in those promises. Because the God of tomorrow is saying, trust me, I got you. And when you see those possibilities, it changes everything else. But then God, Jesus in the scripture leads us to a commandment. He gives us the principle of Sabbath. He talks about our value. Then he has us to, gives us a promise, but he gives us a commandment. In verse 33, he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. 
and all these things shall be added unto you. That's an interesting deal, I think, and I love it. It's one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. I think many times we use that as like, seek first the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is literally connecting seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness to a pathway to rid yourself of anxiety. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What he's saying is seek God first and then trust him with the rest. It's a matter of priority of pursuit. If I'm seeking him first, my mind is focused on him first, so my mind becomes a filter to process all those what-ifs. If I seek him first, my, my, my focal point becomes a filter to process everything else I see. And see, it's a matter of priority. It's a, it's a lens. It's a filter in which everything else is processed. Because anxiety stems from not processing your thoughts through the promises of God. Anxiety happens when I, when I don't process my desires through the heart of God. Anxiety is fueled when I don't process what I see through the word of God. And if I seek him first, anything I see, I'm going to have to see through Jesus. And he says there's reward with that. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It's a seeker's reward. Hebrews 11 says this, and without faith it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards us by giving us the things that we don't seek above him. He says, you're, you're looking for money, you're looking for food, you're looking for clothes, you're looking for all this stuff. If you just seek me, I'll, I'll give you all that. You're looking for peace, you're looking for all this. If you just seek me, I'll give you all of that. And there's something to this principle that I believe is a, is a culture shift for this church. And we talk about the omnipresence of God, which is always around. So when Jesus is saying, seek me, it's kind of a contradictory term if you think about it. Because he's saying, I'm always here. I'm always with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But he's saying, seek me, which is like some you know, universal game of hide and go seek. And what he's really saying is, I'm always here. But when you begin to look, you will find me. And when you find me, I'm going to reward you with my presence. See, the omnipresence of God is everywhere. But the manifest promise or the manifest presence of God is only experienced by those who seek and hunger after him. And we are unapologetically a spirit-filled, you know, whatever term you want to use this week, Pentecostal charismatic church. It basically means this. We do not believe the Holy Spirit stopped ministering in and through people when the Bible came into being. We believe his presence is just as real today as it was in the book of Acts. And I say this with complete transparency. I believe in, in the church past, even spirit-filled churches, we've gotten so caught up in the omnipresence of God and an atmosphere of worship that we missed out on the manifest presence of God. And here's what I'm saying. God gives his omnipresence to everybody. The sinners who are out, just joking, out on the lake this morning, they get to experience the omnipresence of God. 
the people, a Satanist gets to experience the omnipresence of God. Muslims get to experience the omnipresence of God. We get to experience the omnipresence of God. What should set us apart is not the omnipresence of God. It should be the manifest presence of God. And there's two words for the manifest presence of God in Scripture. One is kabod. Kabod is a word that means weightiness. It means it, it, God's glory is weighty. Many of us, have you seen that? It's when you feel God. Like you're in a worship service and, man, I just, I just felt the presence of God today. That's the kabod. It's, it's a heaviness, a weightiness. That's why, you know, sometimes you've seen Benny Hinn crusades and people fall out of the altar. What it is, that's the weightiness of God's presence on them. It's not something magical pushing them over. It's, it's the weightiness. If God sat on you, I promise you'd fall. It's weightiness, a, a feeling. I feel God's presence. But then you have the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory, there's two different kind of nuances to the word. One is kind of like the dark cloud, but the other one is shining. Shekinah actually means shining. So it's when the presence of God shines his light, like the omnipresence of God, everybody in this room can experience the omnipresence of God. But the Shekinah is when God shines his light, his intensity of his presence just on you. And it reveals things to you. It shines a light on his promises, on his word, on his purpose. It shines this light on you. And it, and it, and it may, brings everything else into focus. I believe when Jesus seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things should be added to you, I think he will reveal the Shekinah glory to you to show you his provision and his promises and his purposes. And one of those is, I think he rids us of anxiety. But the problem is we've built churches around being comfortable rather than being hungry and seekers. And the promise is those that seek and hunger after him shall receive this reward. I mean, that's my, my prayer here every Sunday is for God's manifest presence in this place. That God will manifest the presence of his spirit so much that hard hearts become soft, and soft hearts become formed, that the weary are refreshed, that the broken are healed, and that the manifest presence of God saturates the people's lives to transform them. But I can't seek God for you. I can't hunger for God for you. It takes a people that seek and hunger after him to experience his manifest presence. So it's a commandment with a promise. But then Jesus says in verse 34, he goes on to say this. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And what he's saying is that you don't need to let the worries of tomorrow rob you of the joys of today. And I believe when you start walking these five things out, you, you push the pause button. You implement some Sabbath principles in your life and you begin to realize your worth and your value. And then you rest in the promises that God has given you in his word. And then you begin to walk out the, the commandment he gives you to seek first and hunger after him. He blesses you with his presence, which reminds you that tomorrow will come, but today I'm enjoying his presence. In the movie Zorro, there's a principle. I'm, I'm going to close. There, there's the principle that Zorro's trainer takes him, he's just this drunk swashbuckler at the time. And he takes him, draws a circle, puts Zorro in the middle of the circle. He said, this is your world. Nothing outside of this world concerns you. 
And as he got better at sword fighting, he made the circle bigger and bigger and bigger. It's the same way with anxiety. You need to draw a circle around yourself. You have self-control. You don't have control of tomorrow. You don't have control of anything else. You have self-control. And anything outside of there, I'm going to trust God. And everything inside of here, I'm going to enjoy God. I'm going to enjoy him here and trust him with everything out here. And that is my prayer for you, that the days be full of more joy and you'll trust God with more of your tomorrows. Because the things you're worrying about tomorrow, you know, do you realize today used to be tomorrow? Like the things you were worrying about yesterday, about today, today is that day and you're still good. Why? God is going before you. And so before we close, I'm going to have Pastor Jason this is a song I sing pretty much every single day of my life. I'll sing it in prayer. It says, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It's, I, can't, I would have sang it, but y'all don't want to hear that. I believe it's a, it becomes a filter in which you filter your life through. And so I'm going to ask you to just stand to your feet as he sings this song. And after he does, I'm going to go through this one time. After, if you said, you know what, I deal with anxiety... I deal with my thought life getting out of control. I'm going I'm to ask you to do one thing. I want, I want to just pray for you as we go back through this song. So if you deal with anxiety, after you go through this song once, I want you to come down forward. Say, you know what, I'm, I'm anxious about that. You need to realize that you're not alone in your anxiety. That's, that's ex- precisely why I'm doing this. You need to know you're not alone. Two, I want to just agree with you in prayer about these principles. And three, I want the song to remind you that this is your prayer and this is your heart cry. I'll see. 